Welcome to Kung Fu Podcast, episode number 138. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. That's what Kung Fu Podcast is all about, and I'm your host, T.W. Smith. Thank you so much for joining me today in an episode where we're going to step back in time, but not really that far back, just a little over 100 years, and look at a martial artist who has been renowned in many countries and in many places, and even titled as the father to close-quarter combatives. If this is your first time to Kung Fu Podcast, welcome to the program. You're in the audience of some of the finest and sharpest martial artists in the world. The type of people who put in the type of work, the effort, and the research to make their martial arts better every time they practice. During this two-part series, I'm going to be referencing a couple of books. One of those is The Legend of W.E. Fairbairn, Gentleman and Warrior, that was published in 2005 by Peter Robbins. Another one is The Britain's Imperial Retreat from China, 1900 through 1931. And this one is authored by Professor Phoebe Chow, who I've listened to on several occasions, a fantastic researcher, and knows more than I can even begin to know about Shanghai, the relationship between Britain and China, and how Shanghai played a pivotal piece in all of that. I will also put some of the links in your show notes, and they'll be on the webpage as well. Oh, one more thing that's going to be on the webpage too, is that you can go there and once you log in, the ebook. Get Tough by W.E. Fairbairn will be there for you to download for free. So as we begin part one, we're going to be looking at how did William Fairbairn develop his expertise in close quarter combatives? What were the first two turning points in his life where basically things changed in a way that helped him become the legend that we know of today? And then we're also going to take a look at where he was working. Before we begin, I hope I get to see several of you at this September 2nd Myrtle Beach Seminar. And if you're interested in finding out more about that seminar that I'm going to be doing with Troy Price and Paul Cody, go to kungfupodcast.com forward slash surete. And one other thing I'm trying to work out that I'm not exactly sure if I'm going to be able to make it yet or not, but I'm in hopes to get up there to see several of you all at Ian Abernathy's seminar in Franklinton, North Carolina. That's up September the 9th. So if you're planning to go, I hope to get up there to see you all again and get a chance to say hello. And let's begin looking at the biography of William Fairbairn, a.k.a. Dangerous Dan. William Fairbairn was born February 28, 1885, in Hertfordshire, England. It was said that when he was a young man, he would spend his spare time reading newspapers to his blind neighbor. His father, whose name was George, was originally from Liverpool and was employed as a leather cutter. His mom, Laura, was from Mile End in East London, and William Fairbairn was one of 14 children, so he was part of a very large family that had a limited means. Perhaps one of the best research works on the early upbringings of William Fairbairn was authored by Peter Robbins and is titled The Legend of W.E. Fairbairn, Gentleman and Warrior. You should be able to find the links for that inside your show notes and on the website. 
the first turning point for William Fairbairn and how he's going to begin his close combat martial arts career is when he signs up to be a Royal Marine. Some reports say 15, some say it was just around 16, but either way, he was really young and he saw a poster for the Royal Marines and at that point he decided he would join. The problem was is that he was underage. He had to be 18 to join up, but he didn't want to wait. So he convinced a recruiter to forge his paperwork. And after his training, he was shortly sent out to Korea and he got his first action in close combat. Fairbairn was stationed in Japanese-occupied Korea from 1903 to 1907. Like most enlisted men, he spent the majority of those four years drilling with the Royal Marines, who were already considered good in combative skills. But then he also began to use his evenings to study martial arts with both the Japanese and Korean martial artists who were in the area. And then on some of the weekends, just so he wasn't going to be considered a slacker, Fairbairn trained in bayonet fighting drills with Japanese Army regulars. A few authors also reference that these formative early military years and martial arts years was the basis of his double-handed stick methods that you're going to hear about later. Which brings us to turning point two. Fairbairn was rapidly becoming a combat master. And in 1907, remember now he's still really young, he left the Royal Marines and went to the British Legation Guard and they assigned him to the International Police Force in Shanghai, which was, as you have probably heard about in several other episodes of Kung Fu Podcast, was one of the toughest police assignments that any officer in any country could get. I think I mentioned one time before that There was a police officer exchange program that was set up with different important police departments around the world with Shanghai where they would send officers out and exchange an officer so that they could learn from each other and go back. Well, one of those exchanges was set up with Chicago, who happened to be taking care of a rather rough customer themselves in Al Capone and his whole underground gangster mob scene. It was reported that most of the Chicago police officers decided that they would rather not go to Shanghai because it was too dangerous and instead just stay there in Chicago and deal with Capone. Let me share with you a few reasons why that would be and how that is tied into Fairbairn's assignment to Shanghai. The legalized trade of opium had been forced upon the Chinese by the British Empire through the First and Second British Opium Wars. And then in 1906, the opium trade once again became illegal. Well, in 1907, when Fairbairn arrives, warlords are controlling the majority of Shanghai. The Shanghai Municipal Council stopped issuing license to opium dens in 1907. As with everything else that ever becomes illegal, but everybody wants it, it creates a very profitable and dangerous black market for these products and services, and that happens rather quickly. Well, the gangsters of Shanghai were notorious, ruthless, and were tied in to every pretty much illegal vice that you could imagine. However, many times their behavior was kept in check by the military might of the warlord. Even in the international settlement where Fairbairn would be assigned, just like many other officers, this area was also brutal. 
you had corrupt imperialist officials who profited or gained clout by just turning an eye away from all of those who participated or supported the illegal activities in the settlement of Shanghai. Now, this settlement in Shanghai is something that Professor Phoebe Chow discusses a lot in Britain's Imperial Retreat from China, 1900 through 1931. And it's also important in Fairbairn's biography to know the backdrop of what he was participating in, understanding that he had just been assigned there, but the British people and many of the policymakers were no longer wholeheartedly supporting pushing of opium into China, which was forcing this free trade. Many of those folks began to feel that this process was an unchristian act, and then top that off with the fact that the Chinese people were getting very tired of the imperialists being in their country trying to tell them what to do. And of course, we could probably all understand that if somebody just came into your country and all of a sudden started telling you what to do and how you were going to do and then, you know, pushing things right down your throat. We would all probably get our uh, feelings roused up with that. And the Boxer Rebellion, which we have mentioned many times here on the program, is such a demonstration of trying to get the imperialist presence and many of the other things that were being pushed out of China. It would seem that Fairbairn was sent to Shanghai to help protect this area, the international settlement, that was quickly mounting in tension. The Shanghai International Settlement was a place that the foreign powers would enter when they were going through the treaty relations with China. These foreign power nationals also became part of the administration of the settlement, but it had always been predominantly a British affair until Japan started taking the power over in the late 1930s. Was the gangs ran through this settlement, they handed out muggings, beatings, armed robberies, kidnappings, and murders on a daily basis. Illegal opium trade was the really big money maker, but so was prostitution and these other things as well. In fact, I've read a statistic where one in 12 houses were brothels during that time. We run it up a few years. In 1915, the governor of Shanghai is assassinated. And then just a year or two after that, around 1917, the last legal opium shop was closed. But the opium trade did not disappear from the settlement. There were several gangs trying to keep their hands in these vice markets and the profits from them. But the one that ruled the nest was the Green Gang. They used their tactics to coerce citizens, business owners, and even the law enforcement. Eventually, through a number of interesting stories, the Green Gang got so intertwined with the power forces trying to control Shanghai is that when you took on the Green Gang, you were also going to be taking on the wealthiest and ruthless businessmen. There was also going to be a large percentage of the current law enforcement that was corrupt. And eventually, even the military through the warlords and later Chiang Kai-shek was tied into the Green Gang. So we have this stage where Fairbairn, when he gets assigned there, is going to have to face many forces. Warlords, the Japanese invasions that are going to be coming, several competing gangs, and the growing conflict between the communist and the national factions, the beginnings of the Civil War, are all part of what his duties are going to have to focus on. Fairbairn and his officers also had to work on breaking up raging street fights between Japanese troops and the Chinese citizens. 
They were also responsible for trying to repel the communist uprisings in the city. Just pretty much keep the peace in the middle of a war zone. It was in Shanghai that Chiang Kai-shek eventually used his association with the Green Gang to carry out the Nationalist Party's description of purifying the party, what we know of as the White Terror or the Shanghai Massacre. You can hear references to that in Kung Fu Podcast number 71 and 127. William Fairbairn was assigned in perhaps the most difficult environment that has ever existed for law enforcement. So that's our backdrop to Shanghai. And as we had said, Fairbairn had joined the Shanghai Municipal Police in 1907, and he served in the Red Light District as a foot patrolman. The Shanghai Municipal Police was one of the first police forces to ever have a systemized defense tactics course for their officers. Well, just a few months later, William Fairbairn was stabbed a dozen times by members of the Chinese gang, and he was left for dead. He was bleeding out in a dark alleyway in the back streets of Shanghai. Which brings us to turning point number three. William Fairbairn survives, and he decides to stay and continue further training into the martial arts. William Fairbairn gets up, and he goes back to work, and in 1910, he is promoted to sergeant, and this is where he really begins his long career as an instructor in close-quarter combatives. In the book, Up Close and Personal, The Reality of Close-Quarter Fighting in World War II, David Lee writes, quote, In the pre-war years, Shanghai was probably the most violent city the world has ever seen, either before or since. The Shanghai Municipal Police Force, which patrolled its small waterfront area around the docks, seized more illegal drugs each year than all the American police forces combined. Murder, kidnapping, corruption, and drugs were all commonplace, and the police routinely had to arrest criminals armed with guns, knives, and an expert knowledge of the Chinese and Japanese martial arts. After Fairbairn had an encounter with a gang of criminals in 1908, in which he was beaten up and left for dead, he enrolled at a jiu-jitsu school and became the first foreigner outside Japan to gain the black belt from the Kokodan Jiu-Jitsu University of Tokyo. He also trained under Tsai Ching-Tung, who taught martial arts to the Empress of China's bodyguard, and as a result of this expertise, Fairbairn took on the training of all police recruits and he used his experience in dealing with the thugs and bullies of Shanghai waterfront to teach them the unarmed tactics. So at this point, we know that Fairbairn has a military background with the Royal Marines. He takes those experiences and expertise. He gets himself a new job, and he is assigned as a police officer in Shanghai. He's stabbed, left for dead out in a back street somewhere, bleeding out. He gets through it, and he starts training. We know that he studied jiu-jitsu and Chinese martial arts. He earned respect and rank in Asian martial arts at a time many Westerners could not. By the start of 1925, the Chinese people were understandably frustrated by foreigners in the country. The British, the French, U.S., and other imperialist forces were continuing to exploit the people and the resources of China. The Japanese forces had invaded and were killing people in masses. The communists were teaching and organizing people on how to rise up 
and the younger generations of the Chinese people began to do so, which brings us to May 30th, 1925, an incident that's a turning point in Shanghai. What were just frustrations now become demonstrations in Shanghai, and the municipal police force is trying to control this situation. As Phoebe Chow describes in her dissertation and the book, the communists were organizing these strikes, they were organizing conflicts and the demonstrations in Shanghai against Japanese businesses such as the cotton mills. At one of these demonstrations, a Chinese protester was shot. In the aftermath, the protests got much bigger, as you could probably imagine. Eventually, the protests were in the international settlement itself, where Fairbairn worked. Many of these protesters were arrested, and the police brought them into the police station on Nanjing Road, which this, of course, just fueled more protests. And that is when, on May the 30th, 1925, the crowds came demanding the release of their Chinese brethren. Professor Chow reports that thousands of people surrounded the police station. The British inspector, the top dog in charge, wasn't present at the time. He was off duty and out watching the horse races. The second-in-command, in a moment, ordered his police forces to shoot into the crowd of the Chinese people. Many died and many more were wounded. This incident ignited more protests, strikes, boycotts, and more against the British and all other imperialist presences. Fairbairn and the Shanghai Municipal Police had to deal with that aftermath of the May 30th, 1925 incident, and they realized that the Municipal Police Force was untrained for handling these situations, and shooting into the crowd was the wrong course of action. It was decided to set up a special reserve unit, which was led by Fairbairn, and it integrated modern techniques and training in the field of riot control and as well, hand-to-hand -hand combat skills. Over the next many years, Fairbairn got into reportedly hundreds of violent encounters with unarmed and armed criminals as he headed up the anti-riot squad. This special force unit of the Shanghai Police Department was written about many, many times, and it was also going to be the seed of future relationships. At Streets of Shanghai, pbworks.com, the author writes about the anti-riot squad, saying, quote, Its main function is to put down riots, but it also handles the bloodier end of cases, which involve kidnapping, armed robbery, and armed sieges of criminal hideouts. Members of this unit also sometimes guard dignitaries and valuable cargoes for a fee. The unit has a dedicated sniper detachment, headed by Eric Anthony Sykes, a close friend of the unit commander, Fairbairn. The unit trains in the Mystery House, a space designed to simulate close-quarter fighting. It is a replica of a Chinese apartment filled with pop-up targets depicting both friend and foe, as well as distractions, intended to train the officers in instinctive close combat shooting in as realistic an environment as possible." One story reports that Fairbairn's out on patrol one evening, and he walks into a very dicey situation onto a pier with a Japanese officer. And as you know, there was extreme hostility between China and Japan at the time. 
and as Fairbairn approached the Japanese officer, he noticed over 100 Chinese men and women on a Japanese naval vessel. They were sitting there with their hands bound behind their backs. Fairbairn asked the officer, what's going to happen to them? And the officer responds that they're going to be executed. Fairbairn insists that he releases them and allows them to come with him. It is said that even though the Japanese officer was very well aware of Fairbairn's reputation, he refused to release the captives. Fairbairn looks at him, and he calmly tells him to do what you need to do. But there will be a day that we will meet again on these streets, and when that time comes, you will pay for any wrongdoings that has been committed against these men and women. Shortly after that, the officer releases them to Fairbairn. It is said that Fairbairn's body, his arms, legs, torso, and even the palms of his hands was covered with scars from the knife wounds from the fights over the years. Well, with all these experiences and engagement, William Fairbairn takes his martial arts training and his patrolman's experience to develop his own martial arts fighting system. He called it Defendu. The book was first published in 1926 in Shanghai by the North China Daily News and Herald. Then in 1931, a new book, Scientific Self-Defense, is published by D. Appleton and Company, which was basically described as a modified and updated version of Defendu. Fairbairn created homemade bulletproof vests by stitching metal plates inside of a leather casing, which I'm assuming since his dad was a leather worker, he developed a lot of skills growing up. This following quote is from Fairbairn in his later book titled All In Fighting, where he writes, quote, The methods described in this book I have carefully worked out and developed over a period of many years. They owe something to the famous Japanese judo, jiu-jitsu, and something else to Chinese boxing. But largely, they were developed from my own experience and observation of how most effectively to deal with the ruffians, thugs, bandits, and bullies of one of the roughest waterfront areas in the world, end quote. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode where we began to look at the first two turning points in William Fairbairn's biography and as well as the backdrop to where he was working. And after about 20 minutes or so, I thought it would be a good place to put a bookmark in it because we still got another half to go. And in the next episode, we're going to be looking at the third turning point of Fairbairn's life, then a turning point in Shanghai that changes Fairbairn's career. Then we'll take an inventory of the things that he was teaching how does that relate back to the traditional martial arts? And what is William Fairbairn's legacy? All that's going to be coming up in the next episode. Don't forget to look into your show notes for any links. And then also you can go to the webpage to download the ebook Get Tough. One of the things that is helpful if you'd like to support this program is to leave a review. And you can do that directly from your iPad or your iPhone. All you do is on your iDevice, launch the Apple Podcast application. Tap the search tab and then enter the name Kung Fu Podcast or T.W. Smith and it will pull up the episodes or shows that I have going out. From there, we're just three taps away. You tap the album art, then you tap the reviews tab, and then you tap write a review. And you can leave the review right there from your iDevice 
and you don't even have to go back into iTunes. And I greatly appreciate you taking the time to do that. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. Thank you so much for joining me today in episode number 138, where we began looking at the biography and the sketch of a life of a man who's known as the father of close-quarter combatives. Take care of yourself and also remind yourself, recommit yourself to the reasons that you practice traditional martial arts. There are many wonderful reasons to practice your martial arts, but sometimes it is important to remind ourselves the reasons why we practice and the reasons why we endure. I hope to see several of you in September. I'll be talking with you soon.